You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we're reading again this evening in the first chapter of the Gospel according to John, John chapter 1, and uh, you'll find that, actually you'll find that on the same page you found it on last week, which is 1063. I'm uh, just overexcited about dental extractions this evening. Um, Those of you who have had toothache will Uh, realize that uh, there is a gracious reason why Chris gets so excited about training people to take out teeth, and we are uh, uh, duty-bound to pray for the blessing of that work. We're going to read John chapter 1 and the first five verses. John chapter 1, the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's been said for many centuries about the gospel according to John that a child can paddle in it and an elephant can bathe in it. And I think we may have discovered that in an experimental existential way last Sunday night. I came into the building thinking I was beginning a series on the gospel of John and I left the building wondering if I'd actually just begun a series on the prologue to John's gospel, because we got no further than the opening words of verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so it may be that this projected series will turn out to be a series on the prologue to John's gospel, And if that's the case, then uh, that will be the case, and we will go no further. But I want us to turn back to these opening verses again this evening, uh, because we by no means exhausted their significance. In another connection, the great uh, early Christian thinker, uh, St. Augustine, uh, said that he could look down and see the depth, but he realized he could never get to the bottom. And every time you read these words, lyrical though they are, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, they should come to us, I think, with fresh power. Uh, When we read a good book, even a good human book, and then we reread it, We're bound to notice things that we never saw before, or if we're interested in art or poetry, we revisit the same painting or perhaps the same poem, and we reflect on it. And if that's true of human writing, it is certainly all the more true of the inscripturated writings of, for example, the gospel according to John. And so I want us to look at three things this evening. I want us to reflect a little further on John saying that the Word was God. Second, reflect a little further on him saying that the Word was with God. And then reflect then further, I hope, on his statement that the Word who was with God and was God was the one through whom all things were created. And although these are tremendously profound words, they also have a, a, both a marvelous simplicity attached to them, and if we're able to track with them, I think they also have a deep practicality. 
Well, let me begin first of all with John's statement that the Word was God. And let me begin with a little quiz. You're sitting quietly uh, in your living room, uh, you're reading a book, you're drinking uh, your favorite cup of tea or coffee, and uh, the doorbell rings. You conquer your irritation, you go to the door, and you see two people standing outside of your door. One of them, at least, is holding a bag, and it looks as though the other has magazines in his or, in his or her hand. Who are they? Well, if they're not between 19 and 24 with uh, well-cut hair and well-dressed, if they're not that, they're not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, who are they? Well, it's very probable that they belong to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And you know a little about the Jehovah's Witnesses and their belief. You've never really studied it, but you know a little, and you engage them in conversation. You, you tell them, uh, maybe you just want rid of them, but you tell them that you are a Christian, uh, but they are encouraged to engage you further, and in the course of the conversation, you actually confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and God. And at that point, the conversation begins to get a little interesting. Uh, perhaps you quote this very verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It couldn't be clearer. And they say to you, well, of course, that's not what the Greek really means. That's not what the Greek really means. Well, if you're David Robertson, or John Ferguson, or David Ellis, or Will Traub, or Brock White, or any of our Greek members of the congregation, you either get out your smartphone or you say, well, let me just get my Greek Testament and we'll look at this. And it may actually be that they have been well-schooled enough in the first verse of John's Gospel to point to it and say, look, it says here, and they'll have their own new world translation in their hands, it says here, not the Word was the God, but the Word was a God. The word theos, excuse the Greek lesson, uh, I'm not a dentist, so I don't know anything about tooth extraction, but the next most painful thing may be a Greek lesson. The word theos does not have the definite article in front of it, and therefore they say, it means a God, and they'll show you their translation, and it will be a God, small g, perhaps with a little footnote, divine. The word is divine. Well, Bette Midler is divine. I see that passed over some of you. <laughs> Or you think of somebody saying, my dear, you're looking divine this evening. It means you look heavenly. Um, he's not really God. So, what do you say? Well, this may not be of great interest to some of you, but to two or three of you, it may be of some interest to know there are very important things to be able to say and to be able to explain to these people and to other people that, in fact, when John says the Word was God, he really means to say everything that God is in His attributes, His majesty, His power, His eternity, and His glory, the Lord Jesus Christ is. And there are three little arguments that are worth bearing in mind. The first is a grammatical argument, and it's really a very simple one. It's this, that words that have an indefinite form, nouns that have an indefinite form, anarthrous nouns, as the grammarians call them, are very often definite in meaning. If I say to you, who is queen? 
of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. Queen, in that sentence, is indefinite. You are not going to say, well, which queen do you mean? In that sentence, who is queen means exactly the same as who is the queen. And the answer is Elizabeth II. Or if you're really nationalistic, Elizabeth II and the first is queen. And there's a very interesting illustration of that later on in John chapter 1. In verse 49, in the discussion that takes place, you remember how Nathanael answers Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. In the Greek text, king there does not have the definite article, but Nathanael is not saying you are one of the many kings we have in Israel, you're just a king. He really means you are the singular king. And so, in every language, this is the case. Um, so, there is, a, there is a grammatical reason for saying that although the word for God lacks the definite article, it has a definite significance. Uh, perhaps even more persuasive is a second reason. There's a contextual reason for this. And it's quite simply, without going into great detail through John's gospel, that here already in the prologue to John's gospel, John ascribes to Jesus attributes that are exclusive to full deity. In the Scriptures, in the Old Testament Scriptures, and remember John was a believer in the Old Testament Scriptures, there is only one who is the Creator. God is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And yet, look what John says about the Word, who later on in verse 17, he will identify with Jesus. He says, through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, the Word, the Lord Jesus, is not on the side of those things that have been created. He belongs on the other side he is the one by whom they were created. And it would, in fact, have been a form of the most obvious blasphemy if John had ascribed to Jesus the attributes of God, the work of God, when Jesus was not himself God. And this, of course, comes out very clearly in John's gospel because the very thing of which Jesus is accused in John's gospel is what? blasphemy, that he makes himself out himself to be God. And indeed, here too, John says, in him was life. It's because in him there is life, that life is not something that he has derived from another, but that he possesses in himself. And therefore, he is able to say again and again, I am. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And so, throughout the gospel, John gives us all these kinds of evidences in a contextualized setting that when he says the Word was God, he really means that the Word was God. And then there's a third reason. If the first reason is grammatical and the second is contextual, then the third reason is evangelical. John's gospel is going somewhere. And there's a basic law of literature that where you go determines how you begin to get there. Where you go determines how you begin to get there. And where is John going? John is going to the climax of his gospel at the end of chapter 20. He's going to tell us that all of these things have been written in order that you may come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like Thomas did. That's the immediate story he's been telling about Thomas coming to faith. And then he says, I've written this gospel so that what Thomas experienced seeing Jesus, you who never see Jesus will also experience. Well, what did Thomas experience? Let me tell you literally what Thomas said when he saw Jesus 
and Jesus summoned him to believe. He said, literally, the Lord of me and the God of me. And you see, so, you know, we often say the clues are always at the end of the book. If you were in any doubt as to what John meant in his opening words, then those opening words are explained, clarified, pressed home to us at the climactic words of the gospel. Thomas is confessing exactly what John says about Jesus from the very beginning, even though it's, in a sense, taken three years for Thomas to come to that conclusion. That conclusion has been written into the very prologue to the gospel, so much so that one of the great commentators on John's gospel puts it like this. He says, John intends that the whole of his gospel should be read in the light of this first verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this is not true, the book is blasphemous. And what's interesting about that particular comment is that the particular scholar whom I'm quoting there was not a conservative scholar. He was not someone people would rank among evangelicals or fundamentalists or reformed. He was a critical scholar of Scripture. And what he's saying is that if these words do not mean that the Word was God, that Jesus Christ was God, then everything that follows in this book is a form of blasphemy. And so, we should have every confidence every confidence that when John makes this claim about Jesus, the Word was God, he means that Jesus was fully and truly God. But that raises a question, why then did John not save us all this hassle and stick in the definite article? There's a very interesting reason for that. It is if that if John had stuck in the definite article, what he would have been saying was this, the Word was everything God was. The Word was everything God was. And you see, if he'd said that, he would have left no room for either the Father or the Spirit. And so, there's a profundity in the way he puts it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word who was with God was God. You see, but I can't take this in. Of course you can't take this in. You, you, you would need to be a member of the Trinity to take this in. You say, this is a mystery to me. This is a mathematical mystery to me. It's a theological mystery to me. It may well be, but listen, this is the mystery in the light of which everything else in space, time, and history becomes clear and makes sense. And I hope we can see that in the next point I want to make. First of all, the Word was God. Second, the Word was with God. Now, we saw last time that means the Word was face-to-face -face with God, gazing, as it were, into the eyes of God in, in mutual affection and love. But I want you to see what this means. You know what it means. You've reflected on what it means, but you may not have reflected on how significant your reflection has been. If this be true, that in the very being of God, there, there is this diversity of person. And John is just focusing for the moment on the, on the Father and the Son. The Word was with God, face to face with God. Do you see what that means? Do you see how glorious and absolutely radical the Christian gospel is? It means that ultimate reality is absolutely personal. Ultimate reality 
is absolutely personal. Now, why is that so important? Because you are living in a world dominated by scientism that believes the world is ultimately some kind of clockwork orange. You read the great agnostics and atheists of the age, and you ask them, what is the ultimate reality of the universe? And they have to say, the one thing we deny about the reality of this universe is that it has a personal foundation. And my dear friends, if it doesn't have a personal foundation, it isn't a world in which personal relationships have any meaning whatsoever, because they're a figment of our imagination. Without this personal foundation in the in-being of God, all you are is a bundle of chemicals and a series of chemical reactions. That's all you are, absolutely all you are. Your existence has no inner rationality at all to it, no foundation in the being of a person. It can have no meaning beyond the meaning that you put into it. And of course, this is what we hear all around us without those who preach this to us really taking it seriously. Be bold to say that it's in that community that the greatest hypocrisy exists. Because no one who has ever propounded this view that the world is an impersonal, mechanistic universe, a clockwork orange, that we are just a bunch of chemical reactions, that there is an absolutely foundational, biological, utterly deterministic character to your life, has ever been able to live that way. Never. Never. And this is the glory of the Christian faith. And we look at these words, we say, that's too big for me to understand. And yet, even if we don't understand it, it is the very foundation of everything that flows from it. In the world, in history, in our lives, in our relationships with one another, that the very foundation of the universe is personal, that this world was created out of a personal relationship, that, uh, that the children to which uh, mothers give birth are, are just simply blobs of biological reality, chemicals and chemistry. That's all we are. There's no reason for our existence, just acts of causation. And there is nothing beyond our 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years of ongoing determined chemical reactions. That's all there is. And nobody's able to live that way. Every single atheist you ever meet needs to borrow from the gospel in order to have any coherence in their lives. That's why they can never be consistent. They can never be consistent. And so this is a tremendously significant thing for John to say, and it's a very important thing for us as Christians to say for this reason that if we did not know this, that Jesus in eternity was the Word with God, who was God, we would have no way of expressing or understanding what it means to say God is love. If God were simply a monad, that is to say, if there were not this diversity of personal being in God, how could God be love apart from having an object to love? He would need a world, because in its very nature, love issues forth. 
And the wonder of what John is saying here is that before all created worlds, God in His being not only was love, but was loving, engaging in love, Father with Son in this context. Later on, Father with Son, with Holy Spirit, in the, in the in-being of God. And you see, if we don't know that, we, we don't really have a very good foundation for worshiping Him as God. We can get so far as worshiping Him because of what He has done for us, but we would never be able to say, as John says, you remember in his first letter, God actually is love. He didn't become love once we started sinning and needed His love. He didn't even become love once we were created and needed His love. In the midst of eternity, in the sheer mystery of eternity, He always was love, and He always was loving. And He was always satisfied in His loving. He was not just potential love, waiting for something to love. He was actually loving. And so, the Christian begins to see that in these words of John, there's a kind of double foundation for, for, uh, for our existence. On the one hand, that that foundation is personal, and therefore we're living in a personal universe. I think it's probably the scariest thing in the world. I think if you really lie in bed at night and try and think yourself into this world, where everything is biologically determined, it will be very difficult to stay in that world and remain sane. But to know that you live in a world that has been founded on the person of God, and also that He has made you as His image, male and female, so that you can have, you are not God and you're never going to be God, but He's made you as His image so that, so that you can receive His love and that you can love in response. And so you live in a world that is, that is ultimately personal and not ultimately mechanistic. And because you live in His world and because you know Him, then you know that this world ultimately is a safe place for you to be no matter what happens because you know He loves you. And you see, if you're not a Christian, you've always got to borrow from this. Of course, non-Christians deny that they're borrowing from this. That's why if you ask some of the great atheists like Richard Dawkins, about certain human experiences, they will, in so many words, say, don't you dare go there with me. Because I, who have an explanation for everything that is biological, have no actual explanation for that. So, in a sense, right from the beginning of his gospel, John, who knows nothing about the 21st century, shows us the superiority of the gospel to the world thinking in which we live and enables Christians to stand tall and to know that they are safe because this is their heavenly Father's world. And they know that this is, this is not a world of, a, of mere mechanisms, whether they be biological mechanisms or physical mechanisms but this is our heavenly Father's world, and His eye is on the sparrow, and His eye is also on us. I remember as a, as a student, I had a psychology professor. I've never forgotten her lecture on biological determinism. It was like a Calvinist coming into a room full of Arminians and teaching them about absolute predestination. There was a riot in the room. But you see, she was just teaching them what they really professed to believe, but drawing its implications for them. Everything you do, it's just a bunch of chemical reactions. Absolutely, we're just a bunch of chemical reactions. 
It was an astonishing experience. And then that Christmas, I was looking for a book in the university bookstore, and I heard her rather unpleasant voice on the other side of the, of the, the what do you put books in? Bookcase. I overheard her say to the one of the shop assistants, excuse me, do you sell Christmas cards in this shop? I wanted to leap over the wall. I was maybe, I was maybe a little protective of my grades, but I wanted to leap over the wall and say, you hypocrite. How dare you try to steal the joy that only Jesus Christ can give. You want the joy, but you don't have the resources for the joy. And that's a trivial illustration of a profound reality. So, what John is saying here, the Word was God, absolutely. And because the Word was with God, it makes all the difference in the world to the Christian who, of course, we don't live consistently because we are sinners. But you see, this does make it possible for us intellectually, emotionally, to live consistently because we believe there's a real significance in our relationships with one another, that we're not just biological, that what David was saying this morning is important, because we're not just biological. And the person who says, but this is my biology, you need to press home to and say, well, let's apply that to everything then. Here is the man who wants to commit adultery on a daily basis. Here is the man who, who, is, who, who, who has this passion to steal. Here is this man who is a murderer and who enjoys murdering. It's just the way he is. And then the nonsense about it's just the way I am comes out clearly for what it is. And the person who believes in the scientistic view of the universe has got no answer whatsoever except to say somebody needs to do something about this. And if nobody else will do something about this, we have to bring constraints on society to do something, which is why the more atheistic our governments become, the more totalitarian they're going to be. Because in their despair, they're trying to control a world and there's no foundation for understanding what it is that is happening in the world that's going wrong. My friends, I imagine that anyone who said this in, in any of the chambers of our government today, that the reason there is so much chaos in our world, the reason why there is such expense trying to run the country, the reason for so many things. Isn't it unsurprising that it is absolutely paralleled by the turning away even from the nominal profession of the Lordship of Christ and the wonder of His Word History will prove the truth of the gospel by the chaos that's caused in societies where the gospel created the culture and the culture is in the process of disintegrating because of the denial of the gospel. And, and in a strange way, the application of all this is here in John chapter 1, verse 1. And therefore, we might say that it's what's here in John chapter 1, verse 1 that is the only hope, the only way back, the only possibility of reintegration. But there's a third thing here I want you to notice. The Word was God, the Word was with God. And the Word who was God and with God is the one through whom all things have been made. It's really only in recent years in, in the world of kind of analysis of semantics and, and, and words, it's only in relatively recent years that it seems to have dawned on scholars that words actually do something. 
Well, don't put your hand up, but how many of you of my generation were taught by your mother, Sinclair, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you? No, my, my mother did not have a dishonest bone in her body, but she said a lot of dishonest things, and that was one of them. Names will never hurt me. You've heard people call you names. Didn't Jesus say you can murder a man as easily by what comes out of your mouth as by a dagger that's in your hand? Words have power. And one of the reasons words have power is because the ultimate word has ultimate power. That's how the Bible begins. There was nothing outside of God, and He spoke. It was through the Word that He spoke everything into being. By that Word, He created something out of nothing, the Scripture tells us. And now John is saying, now he says, do you see that in in Genesis chapter 1? The reason I've begun my gospel by reminding you of the opening words of Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning is because I want to show you that that word through whom all things were spoken into being is the word who has now been made flesh in Jesus Christ and all things have been created by Him and for Him and through Him. And in all that He has spoken, you see, words are not only what they call performative in the sense that they can do things. Words can do something to you. Somebody's words to somebody this week will really hurt somebody in the church, really hurt us. And perhaps we will use words that will hurt others. Why do words have that power? Because the Word has that power. We live in a world that was spoken into being. The Word has all power. Our words have some power. The Word, the the quintessential Word, which is Jesus Christ, has all power. And He spoke the Word into being. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so, you see, that means that the Word is not only performative in the sense that when He speaks, the world comes into being, but the Word is communicative. That is to say, it's revelatory. Uh, whenever we speak, we, we unveil the reality of our hearts. You know, people say they say the wrong thing, and then they'll say, oh, I'm not usually like that. In fact, I'm not like that at all. And if you've got the chance, you need to say to them, well, you're not actually always like that, but you are actually like that, unless there's a ventriloquist in the room because our words reveal what's in our hearts. This is what Jesus says, and our words reveal what's in our hearts. We get angry with the motorist in front, and then there's a Christian in the back seat, and we say, I'm not usually like that. That's, I'm going against my character. And we say very quietly, no, you were actually acting in character, even if it wasn't mercifully, the whole of your character. And so, we communicate through words. Now, this Word, first of all, spoke out wordless words. He spoke out a creation, and that creation is part of His communication. And the wonder for the Christian believer of living in this world is the Christian believer knows the one who spoke it into being. And everything in it, yes, it's deformed now because of the fall, but everything in it, as he originally spoke it into being, was a beautiful expression of who he is, of his character, of his disposition towards us. That's what John is saying. 
He's saying, this is the sheer wonder. This is, you know, you could be a baby Christian, and this is still true of you. If you understand these words, then it seems as though the whole world changes. I knew a hymn before I became a Christian that I don't think I, I could possibly have understood, but then when I became a Christian, it just all seemed to make complete sense of my experience. George Wade Robinson, Robertson Robinson's hymn, can sound a little dreary, loved with everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. Do you know that hymn? No, let me cite the verse that meant a lot to me. Heaven above is softer blue, Earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with deeper beauty shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am His, and He is mine. Some of you know I've written some books, and People say to you, if you've written books, who've never met you before, I've read your books, and usually they're polite, and they say, but it's really wonderful to meet you, to meet you, the author. And you see, I'd read his books as a youngster, but when I met the author, something lived in every hue. I'd actually, I'd actually not only read the book of Scripture, I'd been I'd been reading the book of nature. I lived almost perpetually and permanently outside on a golf course, going round and round and round and round and round. And there was nothing living in every hue. The blue didn't seem particularly blue. The birds didn't seem particularly tuneful. And then you come to know this is your father's world and everything changes, and you're just a baby Christian. And it, it feels as though, David was speaking about his, his son specs, it feels as though, you know, you've been at the optometrist, and all those things are going round in their machine those days. They're no longer putting the, the spectacle frame on you that weighs two tons and sticking lenses in and taking lenses out there. You're round and round like that, and then, and you say, that's it. It's all clear now. I see it as it really is. And this is the marvelous thing about being a Christian. You know, the great philosophers say, say that the ultimate, the ultimate philosophical question is this. Why is there something there rather than nothing? It's a good question to ask people, actually, who aren't Christians. Why is there something there rather than nothing. And the ultimate scientific question, this is the reason why the great scientific minds of the day want to get back to the point of the beginning, the origin. They want to get behind that point to be able, as it were, to emerge from behind that point and say, let us explain why it is and how it came to be. I am not sure if that is actually possible. I'm not sure that it's actually possible to get behind that moment. But I like in my whimsical imagination to think of meeting the great scientist who has actually, as it were, led the team that has emerged from underneath the Swiss Alps and comes out with the clue to the origin of the universe, and comes to me gleefully because he is an atheist. Well, the man who leads the team may not be an atheist. Apart from the expense of it, they are just exploring the universe, and it's a, it's a godly thing to explore the universe, but some of them are not exploring the universe for godly reasons. They're driven by a desire to find that the unifying principle of all things is not God to destroy John 1.1. And I imagine in my whimsical moments him coming to some Christian and saying, a colleague perhaps, we have been there and we found nothing. And if the Christian was well-schooled, the Christian would say, ever since I've known you, 
all throughout the history of the Christian church. That's what we've been trying to tell you. That God made the world out of nothing. So what did you expect to find? All you've discovered is the truth of the Scriptures. And you see what a what a, what, a, what a strength this gives to the Christian believer. Because here in these opening verses, John gives us the very foundation of the whole of our Christian life, mystery though it is. And it does, I think, three things. I'll just tell you them because time's way gone and you've been very patient. First of all, it gives, it gives weak Christians stability, doesn't it? when everything can be whirling around you, and yet you're stabilized by this, that at the very foundation of your life, you know there is a, there is a personal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and He's a God who is love in Himself, and He's given His Son for you, because they've conspired together, they've agreed together to say, Let's love her. And it gives you great stability. There's another lesson to be learned, and it means you need never be lonely. I think anyone who takes contemporary scientism and atheism really seriously today, tries to be consistent with it, will find themselves in a very lonely and desolate place because love doesn't really mean anything. It's just a biological emotion. And relationships can't last because there's nothing. But you see, no matter how alone you may be in this world, as a Christian, you know that this world is not a lonely place because the Word who was made flesh has come to be your Savior. And because these things are true, it also produces a doxology, doesn't it? We don't understand these things. This is just too much for our minds to take in. At least it's too much for my mind to take in. And we're, we, 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 we feel when we read these words that we're, we're getting near to the circumference of our understanding and we're at the edge, and, and what we see, we can't take in. Ah, but because we know the one whom we cannot fully understand, as we stand at that circumference, we simply bow down and worship Him and say, Oh, Heavenly Father, into whose eyes the Lord Jesus Christ gazes. And into my heart you have sent your Holy Spirit. I bow in wonder, love, and praise, and thank you that here I will never be lonely. Here I will always be safe. Here I will know that I've been loved beyond not only my deserts, but my imagination because the Word who was with God and was God has been made flesh and died for my sins to bring me to know you. And even now, heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green, something lives in every hue my Christless eyes had never seen. Birds, they were singing a second ago with gladder songs o'erflow. Listen to them. Our Heavenly Father, what a world we live in that is so resplendent with the evidences of your power and majesty and glory and kindness. And, and we, we petty men and women, we, we walk around as, as tiny dots on 
the face of this tiny planet in this extraordinary universe. Our lives are, are lost without you, but with you. We know each other. We love each other. We care for each other. We live and die with each other. And it all has real meaning to us. And we're secure. Oh, we pray that you would help us to be so secure in this increasingly antagonistic society in which we live that we'll be able to stand well on the firm ground of the gospel. And that more and more as things disintegrate and fall apart, it will, it will be as it were in your providence a time in which out of the chaos the church of Jesus Christ emerges so clearly like light coming into the darkness and the darkness not being able to overcome it. And in the darkness, it will become so much clearer where the light is to be found. And the heart cry of men and women will be over there. Let me get over there to these people, to him whom they know. Oh, bring this to pass. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.